Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. I think we can all remember lectures that focused on tissues and tissue damage rather than the person who is experiencing pain. And we're all now pretty versed in a biopsychosocial model of health and healthcare, and certainly the seminal work of Professors Lorimer Mosley and David Butler, among others, has really helped to drive rehabilitation clinicians' understanding of pain from one that's a purely biological tissue damage-driven understanding to one that really appreciates the role of the brain. But how many times have you reached for the explanation that pain hurts when the brain concludes that the body's tissues need protecting from an external threat? Today, specialist clinician and educator Laura Rathbone joins me, and she's challenging this nociception view of pain. Laura explains her understanding and philosophy of pain, one that's shaped by sensations, thoughts, beliefs, expectations, and society. Laura, thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Hi, thanks for having me. You argue that the pain model that most clinicians have learned at university doesn't really help them help the patients that they're working with understand or explain pain. Why not? You know, the, the current ways that we're, that we're sort of maybe using biomedical reasoning or reductionist reasoning to try and explain this really, really complex, unique and individual experience often what that means is that actually on the when you're on the clinic floor when you're in front of that person it can be very difficult to answer the questions that they might have about their pain using the sorts of knowledge that we might have been cultivating um, beforehand because much of that knowledge might be based in biomedical uh, explanations things like neural like single neural mechanisms or certain hormones or parts of the brain or central sensitization or you know injury based models a lot of those models can reduce the experience of pain back down to sort of monocausal biology and that that can be very difficult because the pain experience is much bigger than that for the individual so then we might start to use things from the biopsychosocial model. So we might start to reach out towards psychological models um, and we might start talking about things like fear and stress. But then the patient might say, well, how does that connect to what's happening in my tissue? And then we might struggle. And then the, because we haven't maybe done the work of integrating those two things, actually what we have to do in our explanations then is flip from one to the other. And obviously now we've got this, this sort of renewed energy and thank goodness we have because it's necessary this renewed energy and momentum into understanding social determinants of health and the social dimension and how 
societies are formed and how privilege might work and discrimination and how they might be part of the pain experience. But then again, have we really done the work to integrate that across the biopsychosocial dimensions? Or are we now just flipping between a biological reductionist understanding or explanation of pain, a psychological explanation of pain or a social explanation of pain, depending upon which one sort of fits best by our decision making? I think some of the argument has been that you can't necessarily dissociate these things. And it sounds like you're not necessarily arguing that you chuck out biology altogether or you chuck out psychology altogether. It's more that we as a profession and as clinicians haven't necessarily integrated it. You know, all the knowledge that we have great privilege to have access to from things like basic science, uh, rehabilitation science, you know, across the allied health, social sciences, anthropology, all of this, you know, the humanities, all of that stuff that we have the privilege of accessing. This is all going to help us in the clinic, but perhaps where we now need to do a bit more work on is 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 sort of understanding how these things all work together um, and how in every moment you know, a person's experience, conscious experience of themselves, of their world, of their body is made up of all of those things at the same time. And and the issue that we have, I think, in clinical practice is we haven't really got a unifying theory between biology and conscious experience, but it's emerging. And so we need to be up to date with the, the sort of emerging conversation that's happening around situated cognition and predictive processing and thinking about whether the, the sort of philosophy of science that we're basing our decisions on, do those methodologies allow us to move forward as an evidence-based profession into these newer understandings of conscious experience of which pain is one of them. And pain is one of the main things we work with. So we probably do need to be having that conversation and that critical thinking about the science we're using. And I think you term this as a philosophy of pain. So why do you why do you argue that musculoskeletal rehab clinicians need a philosophy of pain? How do we learn about pain at the moment as clinicians? And I, I would say that we probably don't do very much learning at all about pain. So we might have lectures and we might go to talks that have the word pain in them. But ultimately, we're probably still learning things like uh, neural mechanisms, tissue-based understandings, and, and these in themselves are not pain. Like even learning about the mechanism of nociception, this is not pain in and of itself. So the conversation around pain needs to be more human-focused, recognizing and inclusive of that individual's experience on this planet. Are you talking about the conversation that someone might be having in the clinic with the person in front of them that they're working with? Or are you talking about the, the broader conversation within the kind of clinical community that we're having at conferences, at meetings with our, with our clinician colleagues? I would take that even further back and say it's when we're at university. So teaching, for me anyway, from the way I understand it, should feel like a discussion. It should feel like a collaborative community-based idea, like learning. We're all learning together, the teacher and the, and the student. So that conversation around what is pain in the clinic, I think that needs to start at university, definitely, if not, if not potentially even before, because we think about all of our early experiences of biology. Again, they're usually looking at cell mechanisms or tissue mechanisms in, in the absence of the human or the animal, right? You know, even, you know, thinking about when you've dissected something at school. So when we go into university, we're just, it's just often an extension of that, right? So we start in anatomy, we start in physiology, we might start in biomechanical assessments. All of this is privileging 
a dehumanized view of the experience that the person is, the patient or the client is, is likely to be coming in with, which is pain, anxiety, fear, worry, all of those things. And they're completely normal experiences associated with pain, but they're not necessarily normal if we've privileged the tissue-based understanding of what is going on in that human. Now, your bio explains that you're a consultant physiotherapist who works exclusively with people who experience complex and persisting pain, but you don't work with pain. What do you mean by that? That's really good that you brought this up because that's not not exactly what I'm saying when I when I'm working and when I'm teaching. Ultimately, we do work with pain. Like the people people are coming to see me and I'm working with clinicians who are working with pain. The idea is that we're not necessarily focusing on pain. You know, as soon as someone comes into my clinic, the first thing that we're going to do is try and figure out what is pain for them and pull apart this thing that we call pain and try and get an understanding as to what that person that person considers to be their pain recognizing that many of the people that come into clinical practice are are also dualists right so they also believe that pain is a part of their tissues is a is a sort of sensation at the base at the at the at the point of the tissue so i guess what what we're sort of sometimes trying to convey is that we're not necessarily going to work with pain in that way we are working with pain as a rich complex, sometimes contradicting human experience. And we're going to explore that together. When somebody works with me, if they're not seeing a change in their experience of pain or their pain as they report it, I would be, I would be concerned because it would mean that there's not, something's gone wrong within our relationship. I would expect to see at least a change at the point of the experience of pain. So being able to navigate pain differently, being able to make choices about what they do in their life, being able to stick with stuff that's meaningful, which would be a change in how pain functions in their life. And that's the sort of change that we're hoping to get, as well as I feel pain less often. I feel pain in a different way. Perhaps it's feeling less severe. You know, pain reduction and pain relief may well be two different things. And what we're working towards is is sustainable long-term change in that experience. We do work with pain, but it's about changing how you sort of frame it in your own mind and then how you're framing it with the person that you're working with. So I think your point about I don't work with pain is probably a completely fair point to make and and a good point to make. And then it's just about in some ways, maybe this was good because it gives you the opportunity to unpack, well, what does that really mean? It doesn't mean that you ignore pain. It means that you think about it in a different way and you frame the way that you're working with people in a, in a different perspective and certainly in a different perspective than the very biomedical view of the world. And I, you know, I do want to like make sure that people don't think I'm suggesting I'm an expert in philosophy. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in philosophy. I haven't done a philosophy degree. I just talk to philosophers and I've been asking the question over and over and over again, how do we get better at pain care? Do we fully understand what it is to be in pain? And do the models that we use um, help us? And do they fit with our new understanding of pain as a perception versus pain as a sensation? And that's just the question that drives me. Let me pick up a few threads here. I want to pick up on the idea of working together from a human perspective to understand an experience. And also pick up on this idea that we're not necessarily eliminating pain. How do you take your philosophy of pain 
as a musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinician and start to work with a person who might have a very sort of dual pain is is the result of damage to my tissues. How do you start to unpack that and help the person to reach a different understanding about what pain is and their experience of pain and and what is the function and the life that they feel is fulfilling? There is this sort of knowledge of story that they've been accessing and that they see in the world around them um, that they're using to understand their own pain in some situations, but also they're using to convey that and to communicate that to the therapist. But when we are in the moment of, of, of an experience of pain with someone and we have the, the trust and the safety and we've held the space in order to support and sort of nurture that person's observation of what is present in the whole experience of pain, very, very quickly what comes forward is, you know, memories, associations um, with like, you know, uh, past experiences or uh, future worries, or, you know, you might see different sensations. And when we really sort of stop and take that moment and explore it, but, you know, if you can, if you can allow that person to be their own investigator, to investigate their own experience and really observe it, very quickly, the story of pain as a problem in the tissues starts to break down. That can sometimes be very distressing for the other person. So that's where compassionate, active listening is really important. Excellent listeners. Creating opportunities for sort of soft, gentle exploration of what is this thing I'm experiencing in the moment and giving permission for them to step outside of the tissue-based language, which is so limiting for the individual. It's limiting for you as well. And to acknowledge and observe that pain is a richly complex experience. So that when the person does step outside of that biomedical narrative, we aren't panicking, right? We aren't trying to bring them back straight away because it makes more sense for us. We're sort of like, okay, yeah, I get it because it's a human experience. And yeah, there are these biological processes that are contributing, but we don't fully know in what, in which way they're coordinating this experience of pain. And that's the beautiful and exciting thing about being pain specialists and people who are interested in pain is that science is still evolving so fantastically uh, and there's so much scope here for novel new better treatments i have this great position where i get to talk about things like education and therapeutic education and what that really means and you know if we come down to the sort of the root of what we're asking people to do when we enter into a period of education is we're asking them to update the knowledge they already have into either new knowledge or more developed or deeper knowledge Now, a lot of the folks listening to us might be thinking, yeah, this all sounds great and I would love to have the time to have these conversations and to explore these things with the patients that I work with, but I absolutely don't have the time. The insurer won't pay for it. I've got a set amount of time. This is really difficult. What would you say to folks who are in that difficult, challenging clinical environment where time really is unfortunately a limiting factor? I mean, fundamentally, I, I don't know whether we need more time to do this. Ultimately, we're rehabilitation specialists. We work with what we've got, right? You know, and we saw, we saw that with COVID. You know, the, the clinicians that prioritised their role in rehabilitation took to virtual care. When you're working in rehabilitation, we're working with the situation because we're part of an environment 
part of a system and you're working with the individual within that system. So we probably need to be flexible in how, how we work as well. And it might mean that we have to, sometimes maybe we have to prioritize certain parts of our assessment versus other parts about, well, what is it that we need to keep? What is it that we can let go of? Having a philosophy of pain doesn't necessarily mean we need hours and hours to treat people. If we have somebody that comes through who's got low back pain and we've got half an hour, we can still approach the clinic from the perspective that says, yes, I understand you have pain. Yes, I believe you. No, I don't need to prod and poke and hurt you in order to confirm that you have pain. But I might want to look at how you move. For example, if somebody is saying, every time I sit down, I have pain. Well, I mean, we really need to see that relationship, you know, and and it might be that we want to be careful and we might want to expose or grade and make sure that we get, you know, that the other person is part of how we co-create that in that, that session, that experience. And, you know, would it be all right for us to explore that? Because this is really a big part of where you're saying you experience your pain and we, we have the privilege of being able to work with, and that is from cell to society which was the original biopsychosocial model as described by Engel. And what we're trying to respond to is not how does that person fit my knowledge, but how does my knowledge pr- like benefit that person and how does it support that person? But we cannot directly translate what happens in a population-based study to what is going to be right for that individual. So we need to hold that lightly and then think, okay, so what's, what is it that this person is telling me? And how does something I've learned from this rich landscape of evidence that goes across basic science, across philosophies, across allied health, across rehabilitation, across social health, across humanities, right? Because humanities is a medical profession, help this person in front of me. And that requires like parallel processing, which was a Maitland concept. So, you know, we don't necessarily need to get rid of all of this stuff, but we probably do need to do the hard work of actually exploring it. And that is a that is a call to action. That is a plea to the autonomy of the individual clinicians. And that's why there's so many, like, you know, this emerging criticism of the biopsychosocial model as applied by some of the rehabilitation therapists and by medicine and, and across all of our professions, because ultimately we're still sticking in these silos and all we're doing is just flipping from one to another. Laura, for folks who would like to do some more exploring and get into this area some more, what are some resources that you'd recommend? Yeah, um, it depends on which area you're, you're talking about. So I think that we do need to be engaging in the philosophical conversation. So, you know, accessing the great resources of people like groups like Cause Health go online, see what they're saying, you know, and and there was a brilliant podcast series by Ollie Thompson on uh, the Words Matter podcast going through the Cause Health book with some brilliant interviews. And and I think that's really important. Things like the Critical Physiotherapy Network, which is hosted by Dave Nichols, I think, and 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 other people where there's, there's articles coming up about people who are questioning what it is that we do, why do we do it, how does it work, and how could we do it differently outside of perhaps the dogma of biomechanism, biomechanicalism. So they're observing it, not necessarily disrespecting it or saying, you know, or dismissing it, but saying, actually, is it what, is this what's going to take us forward into the next evolution of rehabilitation science-based clinicians? So that would be really a good place to start. 
I also do a podcast, which is where I have gone, like learned so much. So um, I run a podcast called Philosophers Chatting with Clinicians, which is philosophers working in philosophy of science and philosophy of mind and ethics, talking to clinicians and having that sort of back and forth of, well, we really struggle with this, or that might help us understand this a bit more, or, you know, this is a question that we're asking. And it's it's symbiotic, right? It's mutually beneficial because the philosophers go in and they're like, oh, that's a great question. Because they, they ultimately you know, they don't want to waste their time on something that we can say, actually, that doesn't work in clinic because of X, Y, and Z. I also curate a reading uh, community with my friend, Christine Pedridis called uh, Pain Geeks, where we look, we, you know, every month we look at a different theme and we're looking at something from basic science, philosophy, humanities, allied health, uh, rehabilitation, social sciences, to try and explore a particular question or a particular theme in pain why not look up things like predictive processing, you know, the, the, the book by Andy Clark on surfing uncertainty or, you know, go onto YouTube and look up, you know, Sean Gallagher, Carl Friston talking about situated cognition, because, you know, outside of our profession, when you look at things like um, ethics or philosophy of mind or, you know, AI or how we understand, you know, what humans are doing, like these are the, these are the theories that are everywhere at the moment and whether you do it now or whether you do it in 20 years you're going to be learning about this stuff so why not start now thanks for challenging us to think about pain in a different way and to self-reflect we often don't overtly get that challenge so I'm really grateful to you for bringing that challenge today and I hope that it's got some folks thinking and thinking perhaps outside the box a little bit Thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.